Migrants entering the U.S. illegally can request asylum according to U.S. law, but not according to the president. What the emergency declaration means today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. We'll explore the emergency order on asylum seekers. Also, a federal court orders Texas to pay back millions after a scandal involving special education. A Texas-sized problem for folks with disability parking privileges. Also, an effort in Dallas to get more women conducting symphonies. Are their neighbors listening? We'll explain. Plus, what a week in Texas politics. We'll look back with the Texas Tribune and a whole lot more as the Texas Standard gets started right after this. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this TGI Friday, November 9th, 2018. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us as the dust continues to settle from the midterms. By the way, whatever happened to that uh, so-called migrant caravan, remember? The thousands of Central Americans headed for the U.S. border the president used as a fixture in his pre-election rhetoric. The Washington Post reports that if this week's vote was the election of the caravan, no one bothered to tell the caravan and thousands of migrants awoke in Mexico City on Wednesday and Thursday to resume their northward trek. Well, now the president has issued an executive order aimed at stopping migrants from declaring asylum if they try to enter illegally. Fatma Marouf is professor of law and director of the Immigrant Rights Clinic at Texas A&M University. Professor Marouf, welcome. Thank you. What do you make of the president's decision to invoke executive power to suspend uh, the granting of asylum to those who cross the border illegally? Well, it seems to contravene our current immigration laws, which allow people to apply for asylum regardless of how they enter the country. Uh, It certainly does. Uh, Can the president do this? Does he have the legal authority to uh, make it impossible to declare or seek asylum uh, if you've entered the country illegally? Well, I think that's an issue that's going to have to be decided. He has a special emergency power to suspend the entry of people that he believes um, pose a a threat to the United States. So if their entry is detrimental to the interests of the United States. But I think he might be hard-pressed to show that that's the situation here. I was going to ask, can he declare a whole category of people as potentially detrimental to the United States? This is an emergency order, right? And and so wouldn't you have to make an individual showing there? No. um, You know, this is the same power he used um, in the travel ban, which declared entire countries to be uh, detrimental to the United States for their citizens to enter. So that broad sweeping use of power was upheld by the Supreme Court in that case, which um, suggests that the court might again be very deferential here. But we should be clear, we were talking about illegal entry. If you enter at a port of entry, is the president saying you cannot uh, seek asylum there? No, this rule has no impact on people who enter at a port of entry. The issue is that a lot of people haven't even been able, have tried to enter at port of entries, but haven't been able to. They've been turned back by by some of the border agents at the ports, told that the U.S. doesn't even offer asylum anymore, that the ports are full. And so we've had problems of, of, um, you know, people sort of just sleeping on the bridges, trying to get in, trying to apply. And if they can't, you know, going around uh, to try to enter between ports of entry. Now, let me understand something. If someone does, in fact, try to go around the port of entry and enter uh, 
at, at another place uh, through some unauthorized means. They will not be given an asylum hearing. Does that mean they will be immediately deported? No. So they are put in what's called expedited removal procedures, which means they have to pass a credible fear interview, which is sort of a, a very basic asylum interview in order to get a full asylum hearing. So that would still be the law. But my understanding is that, you know, they wouldn't be able now to apply for asylum. However, they still would be able to apply for to related types of relief that are harder to get. So I'm not sure this would really speed up uh, deportations in the way the president thinks it would. I think a lot of people wonder that this is being characterized as a temporary order, an emergency order. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is, what is the time limitation on this? I mean, if the president can unilaterally say, uh, that uh, there's a, a, a state of emergency exists at the border, therefore I'm going to use this emergency authority. Uh, how long does that extend? And if it extends indefinitely, is that not a de facto rewriting of the law that's on the books? Um, so if it extends indefinitely, I think that would be a problem. The travel ban was also indefinite in nature, and the Supreme Court said, well, once countries sort of fix their vetting procedures to comply with our standards, it'll be lifted. I mean, that's what the government sort of urged the court to um, t- to do. So in this case, you know, it's kind of similar where we don't know right now how long it'll last, um, but that still might be help- upheld by the courts given the precedent set by the travel ban. And just to be clear, what is the emergency that the president is trying to defend the country from? Uh, during, you know, in the in the run-up to midterms, he was talking quite a bit on Twitter and social media about the, the so-called migrant caravan. Right. I don't think there is a clear emergency that's been defined. Um, I... You know, he's tried to portray the caravan as violent and dangerous, but there's really not evidence showing that asylum seekers coming from Central America are posing a danger to our our country in any way. Most of them are just fleeing for their lives. Do you expect that this is going to be challenged? And if so, what will the president have to show to maintain this executive order? Absolutely. I think it will be challenged pretty quickly. Um, It's going to be, I think, an uphill battle in litigation, much like the travel ban. Um, He's going to have to show that this was an authorized use of his power under the Immigration Act. And will he have to say anything about the uh, migrants that he expects to arrive in the U.S.? Yes, I think he's going to have to give at least some reasons explaining why there is a national security threat here. Fatma Marouf is professor of law and director of the Immigrant Rights Clinic at Texas A&M University in Fort Worth. Professor Maruf, thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us on the Texas Standard. We certainly do appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Earlier this week, with much of the Lone Star State focused on the outcomes of the midterms, a federal court agreed with a lower court that Texas owes the feds more than $30 million. Why, you ask? Well, it has to do with how the state dealt with public school students who were in need of special education services during the 2011-2012 school year. What's the backstory? Joining us now, education reporter Camille Phillips. She is with our partners at Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. Camille, thanks for speaking with the Texas Standard. Sure thing. Why does the state owe the federal government so much money? $30 million, that's not a drop in the bucket. 
It is not. Uh, well, what happened is that by law, states that receive federal aid for special education are required to maintain that same level of state spending year over year. And in the 2011-2012 school year, Texas cut how much it spent on special ed. Why did it cut Why how much it spent on special ed? What was the thinking there? Well, uh, they argue that they um, that's how much they needed to spend, that they uh, had fewer students in special education that year, and the level of services that the, the school district said they needed was less. But, of course, we can't ignore the fact that underneath all of this, there was a controversy about how the state uh, calculated uh, the number of kids requiring special education services, right? Right. At the time, the state had a 8.5% benchmark. Some people call it a cap. And so school districts were trying to meet that benchmark of not having more than 8.5% of their students in special education. And this benchmark, this cap, as you're describing, it has uh, already been uh, uh, found to be uh, uh, illegitimate. And the TEA has abandoned those caps uh, for the future. Uh, what was Texas's argument when it came to why it shouldn't pay back the $30 million? Well, they said that they kept the same mechanism for distributing funds uh, as they've always had. It's a weighted formula based on how much therapy is the school district says a student needs and such. Uh, but overall, they spent less money. And so the U.S. Department of Education d- disagreed. And the court found that Texas's argument was what? Unpersuasive. Unpersuasive is the word, yes. All right. Uh, what about uh, disability rights advocates? Because you take $30 million out of uh, uh, the pool of money that's available for special ed. Uh, well, what are they telling you? Well, uh, it's no secret it's bad timing to lose money because the state is trying to ramp up special education services. Uh, But what the uh, Disability Rights Texas group says, I spoke to attorney Stephen Alleman yesterday, and he said that even though there'll be less funding, they believe it's important for the state to be held accountable. And they want the state to dip into their rainy day fund to not only... uh, make up for that $30 million, but also pay for that additional $3 billion that the state is estimating special education will cost over the next three years. That rainy day fund, that's money that's been set aside by the state legislature in the event that there's some kind of emergency, like, for instance, Hurricane Harvey. We know, for example, that there have been uh, many constituencies, including those who were uh, hurt by the hurricane, uh, demanding that uh, the legislature, that the governor, open up uh, the taps to that uh, to that money. I'm wondering what this means for the upcoming legislative session. I mean, are you hearing any concerns that this $30 million might put a dent in overall education spending? I mean, I think there's a big question right now because they're also wanting to overhaul the whole school finance system in addition to the special education. And then there's also the concerns about school safety that uh, needs to have funding as well. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the ledge uh, session works out. A lot of pressures on education funding, this $30 million on top of it now. Camille Phillips is an education reporter with our partner station, Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, and she continues to follow the fallout from this decision by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on The Standard, Camille. We certainly do appreciate it. Keep us posted. Sure thing. You're welcome. In today for social media editor Wells Dunbar, it's our own Michael Marks. Good to see you, sir. Good to see you, Happy David. Friday. Thank you, thank you. Very, uh... 
Very uh, much reaction. Very much reaction doesn't make sense. A whole lot uh, of reaction. A whole lot of reaction yeah. to our top story this morning. Uh, the Trump administration moving to I deny asylum is, right? to anyone who enters the U.S. outside a port of entry. Comes as a caravan of immigrants from Central America approaches the U.S. border, although the size of that caravan has reportedly shrunk. It's right. been in flux a little bit. Mm-hmm. Rule promises to be swiftly challenged in court and by some folks over on our Texas Standard Facebook page. Uh, James Art Exum says that this would seem reasonable if there were some way or even an effort to notify people who are on their way of where to go, and if the, quote, legal points of entry don't continue to turn people away because their, quote, appointments are full. Uh, Short counterpoint by Alan D. Granger. He writes, I hate to say it, but it seems reasonable to me. Uh, It could potentially create sort of a a greater humanitarian crisis near these points of entry, as has been pointed out by some folks, Uh because you have a a backlog of people waiting there. Michelle Srella, an immigration attorney in Dallas, says that the new rule is totally contrary to all rules related to asylum, and it's a shameful act on behalf of our country. Yeah, we're talking about President Trump's proclamation uh, that uh, there need to be tough changes And he will deny asylum to all migrants who don't enter through official border crossings. What do you make of this, Texas? Tweet us right now at Texas Standard. Join the conversation on Facebook. Michael Marks, back in 35. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. Business and your money on The Standard. I'm David Brown. Midterm exit polls show that health care was the number one issue for Americans casting ballots on Tuesday. But, you know, with all the hubbub surrounding the midterms, it's understandable if you missed word that open enrollment for the Affordable Care Act, what in the past has been called Obamacare, began last Thursday. Hard data is tough to come by at the moment, but anecdotally, it appears a lot of Texans are signing up for insurance under the ACA right now. In fact, a group of Texans based in the Texas capital city. They help a lot of people sign up for health insurance plans. They say more people came to them in the first week of open enrollment this year than in the same time last year. KUT Austin's Ashley Lopez reports. Corey Hadamer with Foundation Communities says more than a thousand people came to her group to sign up through healthcare.gov in the first week of open enrollment. Compared to the first week of enrollment last year, that's a 22 percent increase. Hadamer says it's a little surprising because the federal government has been spending less money lately on getting the word out about Obamacare enrollment. Um, With all the confusion around the Affordable Care Act um, out there right now, we were really worried that not as many people would come in this year. And uh, the first week, we haven't actually seen that to be the case. Hadamer says options and prices in the Obamacare marketplace are very similar to last year. She says a lot of people qualify for financial assistance, which brings down the out-of-pocket costs of insurance plans. It is also the only marketplace with required protections for people with pre-existing conditions. The six-week sign-up period through healthcare.gov runs until December 15th. In Austin, I'm Ashley Lopez for the Texas Standard. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorksafeTexas.com. And you're listening to the Texas Standard. Today, more Texans live in urban areas than ever before. In fact, eight of ten of us do. That's an overwhelming majority, to be sure. And despite efforts aimed at improving public transportation and increasing public use thereof, One frustration in particular appears to be growing in our increasingly dense metro areas. Parking 
<laughs> Finding a good parking spot? The traffic and the parking. Yeah. Wow. Probably just the parking, really. You know, all those voices you just heard are the voices of able-bodied Texans, but as the Texas Standards' Joy Diaz tells us, the struggle becomes even more of an issue if the person's not just looking for a spot, any spot, but one to which they are legally entitled. In Texas, designated parking spots for people with disabilities are extremely scarce. They only account for about 2% of all spots. I am a person who uses a wheelchair. I have a spinal cord injury resulting in quadriplegia, so I use a power wheelchair. The vehicle Mac Marsh drives comes with a ramp. And so accessible parking is a very important part of my life. But his parking and the parking that's supposed to be reserved for the 12% of Texans who live with a disability is often blocked by able-bodied drivers. Marsh has heard all the excuses. People say it's only going to be a minute, they'll be in and out of the grocery store, they're running late, and that's the only spot they could find. Another culprit? Delivery trucks. I ran into one recently. The driver, his name is Matt, is a 20-plus-year veteran in the delivery business. On the day we met, he and another delivery driver were parked illegally in two disabled parking spots at a strip mall. Their goal was to have easy access to a postmark store, so they quickly got to work loading up packages. Matt, who loaded big and small boxes as fast as he could, told me he runs about 200 routes a day and almost always parks in disabled parking spots, sometimes also called handicap spots. Why do you guys park in the uh, handicap spots? Oh, for a million reasons. Uh, in the majority of places, it's just the safest place. And that's what, I mean, we're supposed to do everything as safely as possible. As we said before, Parking is one urban calamity that touches everyone. But just as Matt, the driver, said, and Mac Marsh confirmed, disability parking spots are the safest spots. That's why they are reserved for people with disabilities. I've actually been to the hospital twice because of people who are parked illegally in accessible parking spaces. The first time was years ago, around Christmas. Marsh went to the mall and all the accessible spots were taken some by people without disability placards. So as many of us do, I parked way at the back of the lot and took up two spots at an angle in order to be able to get my ramp out of my van. By the time Marsh came out, it was dark. He was making his way through the parking lot when he noticed the truck in front of him started backing up. And I'm not much taller than the bumper of a lot of these big trucks in Texas. The truck driver never saw Marsh. And I couldn't get out of the way fast enough, and the truck ran over me. Marsh ended up in the emergency room, not once, but twice. The second time was over a separate incident, but the thing is, those accidents could have been prevented had he been able to park in a designated disability parking spot. Marsh decided to do something about it, something outside the box. So he got together with some friends, and they created an app called Parking Mobility. Having one of those placards myself, uh, it's not just a convenience, it's a necessity for my way of life. The uh, app, as Marsh sees it, has two goals. One, to collect data. One of the things that we found was that 80% of the citations that were written, and there were very few written, but 8 out of 10 of them, 
were being dismissed. Um, judges felt that the fines were too high. They felt that they were punitive towards people, and they are extremely high. Most fines are between $500 and $750, but if they pile up, they can go as high as $2,500. The second goal of parking mobility is to recruit volunteers who can take a class and get certified to essentially write citations to cars that park illegally in disabled parking spots. And those citations are enforceable. Yes, they are. Judge Raul Gonzalez is JP of Travis County Precinct 4. He says once a citation is issued by a volunteer, it's sent for review to a law enforcement agency. Then that case will be filed with the appropriate court, wherever the violation occurred. Right now. Volunteers are only operating in a handful of central Texas counties, but the app is available to everyone. Judge Gonzalez says his dream would be that all Texas drivers take the class. I think a lot of people aren't, haven't been touched personally by someone who has disabilities, and so they don't understand the reasoning why. And so it's not a convenience thing. It is a safety issue as well. And it's a numbers thing. If most people in urban areas struggle to find parking, imagine what it's like when fewer than 2% of spots are reserved for you. I'm Joy Diaz for The Texas Standard. Well, the line is usually misquoted, music soothes the savage beast. You get the sentiment. Music's been at the center of tension in the Texas capital city, however, which claims to be the live music capital of the world. Music's long been such a powerful calling card that hundreds of thousands of people have moved to Austin in recent years, hoping to take advantage of the city's distinctive quality of life, only to find somewhat ironically that as population grows, so do property values, making it much harder to live and work as a musician. You see the problem. One part of the solution? Help build up the music industry here so that making a living as a musician is less of an oxymoron. Now, thanks to a major push led by Austinite Gary Keller of Keller Williams fame and the Texas Music Office, Austin's music industry infrastructure is about to get a big bump. Texas Governor Greg Abbott announced yesterday that Broadcast Music Incorporated, better known as BMI, will open a branch in Austin next year. BMI is a music rights management company based in New York with a big-time Nashville and L.A. presence. BMI says this new Austin office will allow the company to work directly with musicians in the Austin area and hopefully boost their ability to earn a living by writing music. 29 minutes past the hour. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Alexandra Hart with a roundup of news from across the state. The San Marcos City Council has voted unanimously to designate the city's first African-American church as a historic landmark. It was burned down in 1873 by the KKK and took almost three decades to rebuild. KUT's Delia Jones has more. The historical designation comes after San Marcos won a $150,000 preservation grant last month to restore the church, which has been vacant since 1986. Josie Folletta is with the city of San Marcos. It's a really beautiful story because they've included the members of the original congregation in this conversation. They've included the Calaboose African American History Museum, which is directly across the street in the conversation. So there's been a lot of community input and buy-in in the process, which is pretty amazing. A private landowner bought the property last year and planned to scrap it. But after learning about its history, the landowner partnered with the city to preserve it. Delia Jones, KUT News. 
The state of Texas is pushing to execute an inmate on death row, even though prosecutors and defense lawyers agree that he's intellectually disabled. Earlier this week, the Harris County District Attorney's Office took the unusual step of siding with defense attorneys for Bobby Moore in a Supreme Court filing. But the attorney general's office stepped in. In a, a somewhat unusual move, the AG's office uh, filed a brief saying that they would like to uh, that they they would like to represent the state on this case and um, you know argue that he is fit to execute. That's Carrie Blakinger. She covers criminal justice for the Houston Chronicle. She says Attorney General Ken Paxton's office argued that the DA's office represents only one county and not the Attorney General's interests. You know, they also argued that the that the court requires that there be an opposing party when it's in front of the Supreme Court in at, at this point, and that the DA's office was not actually representing opposition in this case if they agree with the defense. It's just the latest in a case that has had implications on how the state determines intellectual disability. A 2017 Supreme Court ruling said that Texas had not been properly calculating an inmate's fitness to be executed in cases like Moore's. It remains to be seen whether the AG's office will be allowed to take over the case. Historic Mission Control consoles have landed in Houston. On Thursday, refurbished equipment used during the Apollo-era space missions returned to Houston from a Kansas-based company, Spaceworks. The restoration is part of a multi-million dollar project celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission. The plan is to restore Mission Control to look exactly as it did for the 1969 moon landing. The full exhibit is expected to open to the public next July. That's a look at news from across the state. I'm Alexandra Hart from the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from Fort Lonesome, Texas-based chain-stitch embroidery design and tailor-made custom western wear on Instagram and at fortlonesome.com. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. As we continue to parse out the implications of what were by many measures historic midterms, the Dallas Morning News is among those noting that the number of openly LGBTQ lawmakers in Texas just doubled. In more than 150 years, there have been only three openly gay members of the Texas legislature. In January, that number officially grows to six. Signs of change aren't quite as apparent when it comes to Texas's criminal justice system. Ryan Carlino is a policy associate with the Texas Criminal Justice Coalition. That's a nonpartisan group that focuses on reforms in the criminal justice system. He's the lead author of a new report called Out of Sight, LGBTQ Youth and Adults in Texas's Justice System. Ryan, welcome to Texas Standard. Thank you for having me. This report uh, says that one-third of parents, I, I suppose I was a little surprised by this, still reject their children after they come out. W- what does that mean for a child who is coming out and is rejected. Could you talk a little bit about that? So, especially if the child is from a low-income family, there's some pretty significant consequences. You know, with low-income families, it's more likely to say, well, I don't agree with that. You're Why kind of income? A, that, that strikes me as a little uh, peculiar that income would be that determinative. Well, if you're thinking about household resources, and if you have a child that you don't want to support who is consuming resources in your household, you know, it might be easier to say, well, we're struggling to make it as it is. And if you are out of the house, that's just going to make it easier. Um, When a child is kicked out of the house, you know, there are few places, especially for LGBT youth, where they can go. You know, a lot of homeless shelters don't allow especially transgender youth to stay in dorms that actually match their gender expression. Um, So that makes 
being in a shelter a pretty dangerous place. And then, you know, where else is there? There's the streets. This can obviously have effects on their mental well-being and what happens to them afterwards, right. of course. We know that a certain percentage of people who have mental health conditions and when when they face family rejection that just exacerbates it and then you're talking about bouncing from homeless shelter homeless shelter that exacerbates it and then you're talking about living on the street that exacerbates it and then interacting with police officers and then getting swept into the criminal justice system Mm -hmm. all of that makes naturally occurring mental health conditions even worse Are, are the numbers disproportionate talking about the number of people lgbtq in the criminal justice system and the general population yeah so nationwide there are some pretty significant disparities about four percent of americans Americans identify as lesbian, gay, or bisexual, but 8% of individuals in prisons and jails around the country, so double, identify as lesbian, gay, or bisexual. For Mm -hmm. transgender individuals, it's a much greater disparity. Only about 0.6% of Americans identify as transgender, but Mm -hmm. about 16% of inmates in correctional facilities around the country are transgender. And so there are similar disparities in Texas. There's, of course, issues with data collection and um, reporting, but... You also have to remember that if you have information about LGBT individuals, that also makes them more visible, right? um, which can be dangerous inside correctional facilities. So how do you hope to make a difference with this report? I mean, where does, you know, where does the rubber meet the road, if you will, uh, when it comes to policy? We certainly want to look at pre-arrest diversion initiatives. Mm -hmm. These prevent people, even with felony charges from being swept into the criminal justice system in the first place. Are Texas officials open? Are they listening? Are they willing to listen? Because, you know, you think about, you know, one of the biggest issues in the last legislative session was driven by the lieutenant governor, mm-hmm. was transgender uh, uh, access to uh, to bathrooms. Right. So in that climate, how optimistic are you that you're going to be heard? That's a good question, and I think that's something we've thought a lot about, and I think that is something when I was writing the report, I sometimes struggled with. I interviewed um, a program director at an LGBT youth homeless services provider, and I asked her what it means for LGBT youth in Texas when they see things like bathroom bills. She made a really profound statement saying, you know, our youth are wondering where they're going to sleep at night. You know, they'd say, I don't have a bathroom. I don't go to bathrooms in public. I, um, I'm i trying not to get arrested. And so these are issues that are much more, much more expansive. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, just immediate. Right. And so that's the opportunity to say, this is an issue that is affecting everyone who is experiencing homelessness. Um, and we can make movement on that. And that will you know, kind of by proxy impact LGBT individuals. Ryan Carlino is a policy associate with the Texas Criminal Justice Coalition, and he is the lead author of this new report, Out of Sight, LGBTQ Youth and Adults in Texas's Justice System. Thanks so much for stopping by and talking with us about your report. We certainly do appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group. Providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com.
I'm Russell Orms from Austin, Texas, and I am the reigning 2018 Giant Pumpkin Regatta winner from Damaris Gata, Maine. So every year on Columbus Day in Damaris Gata, the, the uh, village, it's only about 2,500 people, is invaded by giant pumpkins. There's a grow-off. And the pumpkins range anywhere from five or 600 pounds up to 2,500 pounds. And then uh, a crazier group of people carve them into boats and they paddle them in the frigid harbor. The craziest ones hang uh, outboard motors off of the backs and we race them at a higher rate of speed. And that's what we do. I've done it for the past five years and I happened to win this year. It was, it was a lot of fun. There's a lot of fanfare. All of the participants are marched down to the water behind a bagpiper in full Scottish regalia. There's a blessing of the fleet by one of the local pastors, and then it's off to the races. One leg of the, it's a triangular course, one leg of the course, you're going along the breakwater and, and there are thousands of people screaming and cheering and, uh, yeah, this is New England. Uh, you, you'd think they didn't have cable television. I can't believe so many people turned out uh, to, to see a pumpkin race. There's a lot of carpentry. You have to actually lay a deck on it, um, attach it to this pumpkin with bolts, and then you have to build a transom, uh, the part that you would attach the motor to. So it ends up looking pretty boat-like with the flotation being supplied by this uh, giant pumpkin, but not very well. It, it was so much fun. You know, I, I know and love all the guys I work with, so it's a very friendly rivalry. And actually, after five years being able to win, um, it, was, it was great. And then you get a statue all of about uh, uh, four and a half inches high. This is Russell Orms, the reigning pumpkin boat champion of the Damaris Scotta Festival and Regatta, and you're listening to the Texas Standard. Coming up on 43 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time, I'm David Brown. The Dallas Opera's Hart Institute for Women Conductors is in its fourth year, and it's been getting attention, including from next door, home of the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. That organization recently launched its own Women in Classical Music initiative, which led some to wonder if it's competing, cooperating, or maybe just tolerating its arts district neighbor. KERA's Bill Zebel stopped by the Hart Institute looking for some answers. Sonia Ben Santamaria's arms are in the air, her eyes on the score, as she conducts two pianists. Teacher Carlo Montanato sings and offers tips. French-born Ben Santamaria is already a pro who wants to get better. She's the first female conductor ever in the United Kingdom's Royal Opera House Young Artist Program. She's one of six women accepted into this year's Hard Institute for Women Conductors. She calls the two-week program a safe place. For women to grow confidence in their own ability to conduct. This means a lot. We feel safe, we feel mentored, we feel supported. By safe, she means it's a place where she can relax, let down her guard. When I'm back home, I'm surrounded by male conductors mentoring me, 
that's the only role models I've got. And here, I'm surrounded by women. And I can feel that I don't have to try to look like anyone but myself. The Institute first began in 2015 to help level an uneven opera field where men have dominated for centuries. There was even a time when male singers were castrated to perform female roles rather than allow women singers on stage. The Dallas Opera's Director of Artistic Administration, David Lamely, says the unique Heart Institute's already had an impact. It's inspired other, though shorter, female conducting programs like the New York Conducting Institute. Some Heart graduates now hold leadership positions in opera companies around the world, as others are guest conducting. We are creating a, a change and a wave of change that the more they are in the workforce, the gender equality is going to arrive because they're suddenly being named decision makers too. Next door at the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, Kim Noltemi's the newest decision maker. Since January, she's been the Dallas Symphony Orchestra's president and CEO. This year, she announced the DSO's own 10-year women's initiative. Half of all commissions will go to female composers. Principal guest conductors will continue to be women on two-year appointments. Pulitzer Prize winner Julia Wolfe's been named the composer-in-residence. There will also be a Women in Classical Music Symposium. Nultimi says the Heart Institute helped influence it. I thought, well, if we have the Heart Institute drawing all of these women for this two-week period, then we thought it was very important to schedule it to overlap with the Heart Institute. Because why would you ever want to tell everyone, oh, come back in a month or come back in two months, you know, and so we can build on that. The collaboration's already being built. Nultimi joined the Institute's two-week faculty and addressed this year's class of conductors about arts management. Loma Lee quells any concern that the two women-based programs are competing with each other. I don't really feel that it's about competing. What, what I love of this is that now Dallas is screaming that this issue exists and that we need to do something about it louder than any other city in the world. Nultimi's own research finds Dallas has long made noise about gender equity. She says five previous assistant DSO conductors have been women. That's unusual compared to other orchestras. She looked at Dallas Symphony personnel going back nearly half a century and found 40% of DSO players have been women. And that's highly unusual. If you go back to the 70s at some of the larger orchestras, you're going to see that it's many fewer. And so I thought, wow, that's really interesting. So for many, many decades, women have been very involved in the arts in Dallas, and now we're shining a light on it through these initiatives. With the public benefiting, most immediately, this year's class of women opera conductors will show off their stuff Saturday when they lead the Dallas Opera Orchestra and singers in a public concert to end their intensive two-week education. From KERA in North Texas, I'm Bill Zebel for the Texas Standard. For years, there was a little spot of information by a painting on display at a museum in San Antonio on loan from the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. The placard beside the portrait of a mixed-race house servant read, In the style of Diego Velazquez, a reference to the way that a Spanish master artist of the 17th century did his work. At one time, it was hung unceremoniously behind a door at a Texas home before it was donated to the Houston Museum and lent out to San Antonio. Well, now, it turns out that the painting that was thought to be a facsimile in the style of Velazquez is something more than that. The Houston Museum's chief paintings conservator has helped prove, and experts now agree, that the work is, in fact, a piece by Velazquez himself, 
the leading artist in the court of King Philip IV, one of the most important painters of the golden age of Spanish painting. The art is titled Kitchen Maid, and it is very similar to Velazquez's larger kitchen scene owned by the Art Institute of Chicago and his Kitchen Maid with the Supper at Emmaus, which belongs to the National Gallery of Dublin. So, can you still see the piece in San Antonio? Uh, that would be no. The newly discovered or rediscovered Velasquez original is marking a homecoming of sorts today in Houston, where it is on public display. It is the museum's first work by the Spanish painter, depending, of course, on how you count these things. Coming up on 49 Minutes, past the hour, Texas Standard Time. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, with a reminder that November is Lung Cancer Awareness Month. A preventative regimen, including a healthy diet and exercise, can help prevent lung cancer. More at TexasOncology.com. I'm Sean Petrie. I'm with the Typewriter Rodeo. In the Typewriter Rodeo, we make up poems on the spot on whatever topic people want. Getting Out, a poem for Jess. Oh, all this traffic has me beat. I gotta get off these city streets. Just a short drive across the county line with no one ahead and no one behind. Just me in this open country road where shoulders relax and time has slowed. Driving here alone any time of day is my perfect short trip to get away. For the Texas Standard, I'm Sean Petrie with the Typewriter Rodeo. Support for the Typewriter Rodeo comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. You know how this works, right? You send us a poem idea, any idea will do. We send it to our friends at the Typewriter Rodeo. Then you can listen each Friday right here on the Texas Standard. You can also find the Typewriter Rodeo anytime on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are served. Now, for our Friday look back at the week that was in Texas politics, and what a week it was indeed. Texas Tribune reporter Alana Rocha is with us in the studio. Alana, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Boy, uh, there's still a lot to unpack from the midterms. I know you did some of your election night coverage uh, uh, for the Trib and for the next RTV stations around the state. Mm-hmm. What was your biggest takeaway? Close but no cigar for our work. You know, and I think that Ted Cruz was successful and the Republicans with Trump's help and the rally uh, turning out Republicans. We know that they've often uh, outnumbered uh, Democrats turning out to the polls and Mm -hmm, and they mm -hmm. did show up uh, this election where, you know, he came in within single digits, early voting, Beth O'Rourke led. um, But, you know, Republicans still turned out uh, in mass. I find it fascinating how much conversation has been built around whether or not there was a blue wave. So uh, maybe it didn't break for Beto, but would you say that something fundamental has shifted in the political map of Texas uh, as of Tuesday? For sure. You know, we've done a lot of reporting since Tuesday on just uh, how Dallas County, you know, the suburbs up there were gerrymandered to vote Republican and and they went decidedly uh, blue Mm -hmm. uh, this past uh, Tuesday. And yeah, so Tarrant County, look at what happened in Tarrant Tarrant County. County, We are D.C. Bureau Chief Abby Livingston pretty much predicted it. She wrote a piece a couple weeks ago saying, this is the last big conservative county in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this going to flip? And sure enough, you know, several factors there. Last election was split decision, or split decision, that was our series, uh, of straight ballot uh, <laughs> right, right. Uh, 
you know, uh, straight ticket uh, voting. Uh, voting. Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah, and of course, O'Rourke at the top of the ticket. I've heard so many people talk about how this was the first time uh, that they can remember that they skipped the straight ticket, straight uh, uh, party voting and, and really were careful about who they were uh, selecting here. Um, Better O'Rourke, as you mentioned, uh, lost uh, to Ted Cruz. Uh, he still helped a lot of down-ballot Democrats, I think you can say. For sure. Uh, judicial races, congressional That's candidates. That's a big thing. We haven't even touched on the judicial races. Oh, it was huge. Uh, you know, they flipped uh, seven uh, of the state's appeals courts are now a Democratic majority. Mm-hmm. Before, they only had seats on three of the 14. So that's a huge takeaway from Tuesday. And yeah, you can credit our work for a lot of that. I, I was reading in the Texas Observer, they were already saying Texas is now a purple state. Purple, I think you can go there. Yeah. Really? Well, yeah, I mean, look at the, the split you saw between O'Rourke and Cruz and then Abbott and uh, Valdez. You know, I mean, there were people that obviously voted for O'Rourke and also voted for Greg mm-hmm. Abbott. Right, right. And so, yeah, that was kind of the definition of purple going well, into this. What about turnout? Because this was extraordinary turnout by people energized by not just the issues, but clearly this was a referendum on Donald Trump and the tone and timbre of, of, of politics in the U.S., really. For sure. I mean, in Harris County alone, you had 51 percent of voter turnout. That's incredible. It is incredible. Uh, a lot of motivations there. Of course, again, a shiny candidate at the top of the ticket with O'Rourke. Is that a long-term thing? I mean, Texas has long been thought of as a place where turnout was low. Um we going to see something like this in 2020, 2022? Now it's up to the state Democrats, I think, to foster and nurture these voters and get other candidates like O'Rourke uh, to continue to energize them to turn out. Uh, before I let you go, uh, some other big winners, women big winners on Tuesday in Texas. And Texas is also sending their first two Latinas to Washington. Sylvia Garcia and Veronica Escobar. Escobar being O'Rourke's uh, replacement going to uh, Washington. Yeah, huge. And they're the first uh, freshman women among them uh, elected to a full term in Congress from Texas in 20 years. Big changes to Texas politics this week, and the folks at the Texas Tribune have been following it. You should too. TexasTribune.org. Alana Rocha is a reporter there. Thanks so much for coming in and talking with us. Thank you. Have a great weekend. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. In for Wells Dunbar on this Friday, it's Michael Marks, who's monitoring the talk of Texas. How you doing? Doing pretty well. How you doing, David? I'm excited for the weekend. Uh, that makes two of us. Yes. Well, we just heard it right there. We're, uh, we're not talking about what happened so much anymore. We're talking about what it means, right? Yeah, that's how that's this works. Fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. Well, West Texas says not so fast. Talking about House District 23 here. Oh, yeah, right. Huge piece of land runs west from San Antonio to the edge of El Paso. Mm -hmm. The race for D23 not quite settled, depending on who you ask. The incumbent Republican Representative Will Hurd has declared victory. And indeed, Texas Secretary of State shows him with a lead of about 1,200 votes or so. 1,200 votes. However, the challenger, Democrat Gina Ortiz-Jones, not quite ready to concede. She says she wants to make sure that every vote is counted, Mm -hmm. including provisional ballots. The Heard campaign says they want the same thing, but also for Ortiz-Jones to throw in the towel. (laughs) Over on the Texas Standard Facebook page, Brad Emmons writes in part, it's funny how challengers always assume all the uncounted votes will go to them. Not quite sure if that's necessarily the assumption here, but uh, in San Antonio, MX and TX tweets, 
Gina Ortiz Jones is still in a race that is too close to call. I mm-hmm. hope that Texas journalists will keep their eyes on the story. All these elections matter to those of us who have worked for change in our home state. It's really remarkable out there in Texas 23. I mean, it flip flop, flip flop for so many years, yep. and now Heard seems to maybe have had a, a, a tenuous grasp on this. Uh, certainly, more news to come in the coming days. Uh, Ortiz Jones, I think, if if in fact she were to uh, be found to have been elected, mm-hmm. uh, she would be the first. Filipino American elected to Congress. I believe that is correct. Yeah. I believe that is correct. Switching gears real quick to another branch of mm-hmm. government, David. Thank you and I were talking about this in the newsroom. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg right. took a fall earlier this week, yeah. fractured three ribs. That's pretty serious stuff. But according to a spokesperson for the Supreme Court, Justice, Justice Ginsburg has been released from the hospital. Mm-hmm. She's doing well, working from home. Uh-huh. To that, KUT reporter Delia Jones tweeted this morning, I have absolutely no reason to slowly roll out of bed this morning or complain about being tired, given what Justice Ginsburg has been through. Mm. Also wanted to share this from Jackie Che in San Antonio. I wish RBG a speedy recovery. Of course, conservatives want another SCOTUS seat, but we want it the good way through retirement. Wishing Justice Ginsburg the very best. We are out of time for the big broadcast this week, but of course, the news continues, and you can always check out TexasStandard.org for the very latest. And we certainly hope you will join us again on Monday. On behalf of the entire Texas Standard crew, I'm David Brown wishing you a wonderful weekend. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. Would your company or organization like to be a sponsor as well? Contact your local station for opportunities within your community. For statewide sponsorships, visit texaspublicmedianetwork.com. Public Radio International.